Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up at your door in as little as two days. Then, when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out for more new-to-you styles. Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years. But if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. Rather than going to the mall for hours and spending too much money on pieces I might not like, Armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothing for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off of their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murder in the rain. That's A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murder in the rain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Last week, I took you down the path of harm and destruction left behind by Jesse Clarence Pratt, how his partners, Linda, Cheryl, and Nancy, and their children all became victims of his violent temper and his hands. I told you about the kidnapping and rape of Teresa and how Jesse could be the party responsible for the disappearance of Virginia Rambus and that he was the last person seen with the woman whose body was found in a gravel pile at a rest stop in Oregon, Carrie Love. This week, in part two of three, I'll be telling you about Carrie and how good detective work paired with strong forensics led to Jesse's arrest. At the end of last week's episode, I spoke about Bruce McDonald and how he found peculiar personal items off the highway on June 17, 1986. Taking them to the police, blood, and other evidence was discovered that had them believing they may soon be searching for a murder victim. When the name on the property discovered, Carrie Love, was matched to a woman who had left on a road trip with her boss, Jesse Pratt, concerns heightened. Concerns that were validated when a young woman's body that matched Carrie's description was found in a gravel pile. Carrie Lynette Eckhart was born on March 3, 1966. When she was five, several monumental changes affected her life. Her parents, Connie and William, divorced, and her half-sister Kelly was born. Carrie's birth father wasn't much in the picture, so when her stepfather, James Love, filled in that missing parental puzzle piece, she was quick to bond with him, eventually taking his last name. Carrie was independent and tenacious. She was energetic, outgoing, and caring. Her willingness to be up for anything was appreciated. She always had a mind of her own, a mind that loved math so much she explored the career option of becoming a certified public accountant. In school, she participated in Future Homemakers of America, DECA, which is Distributive Education Clubs of America, which fosters students who want to focus on business, and several sports. She was a scorekeeper, a bat girl, and was even involved in a club that focused on building morale for the school's teams. In 1984, she graduated high school. Getting her first job, she worked in an assisted living facility for the elderly. When she wasn't working there, she was babysitting. Her willingness to go above and beyond while sitting, like cleaning the house or doing the dishes, was always comically ironic to those who knew her, as keeping her own room clean was a bit of a struggle. 
it's kind of funny to think that there was a club dedicated to yeah, keeping morale like up not, on sports. Yeah, like not quite cheerleaders. If your sports need a morale booster, <laughs> there might be a problem. We maybe need a different club to figure out. <laughs> I like have been sitting here thinking about that. <laughs> it's a pep squad, pep squad. Yeah, yes. I guess it's a different way to consider pep squad. a pep squad, though. You know, like I never really thought about it that way. A morale that that's booster. What it is. Yeah, that's all it is. Does that really work, though? Because I've seen plenty of schools without them. Well, maybe they're sports clubs are very sad. (laughs) Diverting from her CPA dream, Carrie joined the Oregon National Guard and was soon off to basic training in San Antonio, Texas. After her initial training, she went to Illinois, where she received specialized training as a weather observer for the Air Force. Going back home to Washington, her new job sent her 50 miles due east of Tacoma to the Stampede Pass. While there, she worked as a helicopter dispatcher. That job shifted to the Sexton Summit, 280 miles south in southern Oregon. That is the only Sexton Summit I could find, but there may have been one somewhere in the deep parts of Washington. And I'm guessing this because Carrie would leave her post whenever allowed to go visit her friends in Seattle. Monitoring the weather over a desolate mountain pass was isolating and not the fulfilling adventure Carrie had hoped for. It was the spring of 1986 when Carrie left that job and moved into an apartment with her friend Kelly. In early May, the two were at lunch at Flynn's Cafe near the airport. Having recently moved, Carrie was still needing a job, and that's what the girls were discussing. The waitress then told her that a man in the booth next to her had overheard and asked for her to join him. Creepy. She went to the bushy-haired man who stood a foot taller than the five-foot-two Carrie What transpired wasn't so much a job interview as it was a greeting and the offer of a job to be the secretary and dispatcher at his Northern Star Trucking Company. The man was Jesse Pratt. Six weeks later, Carrie would be dead. Since Jesse couldn't pay her much for the job, he offered the benefit of an apartment. She wouldn't have to live with him. It would be her own place, but he would pay for it. A deal that would be hard for anyone, especially a 20-year-old trying to get their feet on the ground, to turn down. Carrie was now living at the Air Vista Apartments. Once there, she began receiving suspicious packages and gifts from a secret admirer who referred to themselves by the charming moniker Spider. Two weeks into her job, which she was picking up quickly and thriving in, Jesse offered her one of his escort jobs. She wouldn't have to have sex with anyone. For one job, she would simply need to stand naked in front of a gay couple as they had sex to earn $400. And for $1,000, she would have to watch a man masturbate. She refused to do either. Maybe her status as an employee was the only thing keeping Jesse from physically attacking her for such rejection. That came out of left field for me. I have a trucking company and Uh an escort service. Would you like to earn money on the side gross was he the man masturbating <laughs> oh no there was a it was a third party but that wouldn't have been shocking at the time carrie's love life was complicated she had dated a bad boy biker named jim they had a casual more physical romance that eventually went to the back burner in july 1985 carrie met cody a high school student they became an official couple that january After Carrie was working at Northern Star, it was time for Cody's prom. To escort his date, Jesse allowed Cody to borrow his gold Cadillac. That kind gesture didn't mean much. The day after the prom, Jesse told Carrie that if she was ever interested in being with a real man instead of a child, she should come talk to him. He also mentioned two locations Cody and Carrie had gone to on their date, making it clear he had been stalking them. Carrie was a good office manager, and she was savvy for her age. She caught on pretty quickly that neither Northern Star nor Double Jack were legit, nothing more than fronts for his nefarious dealings of drugs and women. And she was right. Neither business was registered with Washington State. Jesse's checks were known to be made of rubber, bouncing all over town. Because of his gnarly reputation, many wouldn't hire Northern Star either as drivers or contractors. Some drivers signed on to work for Jesse, but once they realized that having the name Northern Star attached to them was costing them jobs, they would move on. Jesse didn't care about his reputation. He was a hustler, always focused on shuffling around to keep creditors away. He was months behind on rent. 
He had even listed his phone number in the name of one of his former stepfathers in an effort to keep the bill collectors at bay. On June 6th, Jesse hired another office helper, Mona. She wasn't as quick to pick up on the office duties, but she was quick to fall under Jesse's charm. Jesse brought up that he would be making a trip through Southern California and was hoping to have some company. Mona's understanding was that this was a business trip. As it got closer to the 16th, the day Jesse was planning on making that drive, he was still trying to find someone to go with him. His first choice was Louis Randolph. He was fully on board to go, but there were two issues. One was that his truck needed new brakes, and that had to be done. The other issue? He hated Highway 97, which was Jesse's preferred route for going south. He hated it so much that he just couldn't agree to go. I always find that funny when people have such a strong reaction to a certain path. Yeah. When Chloe was a kid, she always would like dictate the path we would take home and she'd get <laughs> mad if I went a different one. Oh, that's funny. And she still does it sometimes. She'll be like, oh, I hate this way home. I guess knowing someone's context is always helpful. But yeah. I, it's so funny because I don't have that strong of a reaction. Right. To it, yeah. But, to be like, no, I'm actually not going to go but with like, you now. It will turn Chloe's entire day <laughs> and this guy like literally won't go on a trip because of it. Like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's called the Dallas, California Highway. Did you mention that? Oh, uh, I did not. Well, that that kind of makes me think. I've never been to the Dallas, but to me, it sounds like a bleak wasteland. It's, the Dallas? Yeah, I've just never been there. I don't know what. I don't You've even know never driven is. by oh, it? really? I mean, I don't think so. It's right on Highway well, that's 84. Funny. We should go out there. Maybe. I go there all the time. They have a great Dutch Brothers. <laughs> yeah, so I it, it is known for just being a lot more truck traffic, and it isn't as monitored. And that's actually why Jesse preferred it. It took less gas than the five and it wasn't as monitored like they didn't even have scales at the California border. Yeah. Even to this day, I like it because it's there's low traffic on it. Like if I'm going to bend, mm -hmm. I'll usually go that way. And I like it. You can go pretty fast. Yeah. Even though he wouldn't be going on the trip, Lewis went by Northern Star that Monday. He needed to pick up a $400 check from Jesse for a haul he had done. There to do the same thing was a young black man who is believed to be a son that Jesse actually was denying. Oh. He warned Lewis about Jesse's checks and how they don't always get cashed. Lewis would eventually be given a check written from the Double Jack account. While there, Lewis could overhear an argument between Jesse and a young woman. It was Carrie. She was furious that Jesse would write a check knowing full well they didn't have the money to cover it. There was also something being said about going to California. Mona was then selected as the lucky passenger. She had an issue as well, which was that she was unable to find a babysitter. It did make sense for her to go because she had only worked at Northern Star for a few days. Leaving her alone over the five-week veteran carry didn't seem like the wisest choice. Mona would have been happy to go, and she was actually pretty bummed it hadn't worked out. That left Carrie Love. She wasn't really stoked about the invite, but she accepted it as she was planning on visiting her father, William, who lived in the Los Angeles area. She would ride with Jesse, get dropped off with her dad, and fly home on Thursday. She needed to be back in Seattle by the weekend as she had a National Guard training drill that was mandatory. Carrie had tried to get Jesse to let her fly both ways, but he said he would only put up the money for her flight home. The night before they left, Carrie had spent the night with her ex, Jim. Though they were only a couple of years apart in age, the difference between being in high school and being a graduate who has a job and has freedom is light years. Carrie was feeling the strain with Cody as she was enjoying the adulthood of her relationship with Jim. She knew she needed to end things with Cody. That Monday morning, she picked him up at school and the couple went to her place to get her suitcase for the trip. She had planned on breaking up with him, but that was an impossible conversation to have because when they got to her place, Jim was still there. Ooh. Well, that's one way to end a relationship. Grabbing the suitcase and leaving, Cody and Carrie headed to the Northern Star office as the plan was to get on the road as soon as possible. On the way, she stopped at a bank. When they got to the office, Cody brought in her suitcase, they said their goodbyes, and he was off to his job at the theater. It was 11.20 a.m. There was an unexpected delay in the travel plan. Carrie phoned Cody at work around 4 p.m. saying they were just now leaving. This was due to a man named Melvin McClintock, a.k.a. Mel. Jesse had wanted to leave early in the day, but Mel had taken the truck and was supposed to have it back at the shop before 3. 
En route, he got a call from his wife, Connie, that she was having car trouble. After the detour of getting her safely off the road, he got pulled over in Everett because of a lack of registration and expired plates. That ticket was passed on to Jesse. As Mel parked the truck, he took a quick inventory of what was in the cab. There was a green sleeping bag with a plaid interior, a toolbox, a flashlight, two portable TVs, an AM-FM radio, a CB radio, blue beach towels, and two pillows. He also left two new rolls of green paper towels, among others. He knew a roll of duct tape was on the floor because he had used it to tape the antenna on the CB radio, and his wife had mentioned kicking it around when he was giving her a ride. After being berated by Jesse for his tardiness, excuses or not, Mel was on his way. As he left, he overheard Jesse ask Carrie if she had gotten the money. Mel didn't pry. As for what he thought of their relationship, he assumed Carrie and Jesse had been intimate because sex was Jesse's number one priority. Mel and Jesse had quite the history. When Jesse was arrested for the kidnapping of Teresa, Mel and Connie helped him get an attorney. From what he had been told by Jesse, Mel thought that Jesse and Teresa had a relationship, but her workmates were getting in the middle. The McClintocks had even been waiting for Jesse at the Tequila Inn for dinner when he was getting arrested in the motel. After Jesse was extradited back to Washington, Mel went to visit him in jail. After that, the couple removed themselves from Jesse as they were becoming scared for their own safety. Even though they moved and didn't give him new contact information, Jesse was able to track them down in 1985, and he offered Mel a position as an office manager for his new trucking company. He then asked if he could meet the couple's young daughters. They said no. Mel took the job and quickly learned it wasn't to be an office manager, but a driver. Carrie was young, but she wasn't stupid. She promised both the men in her life that if Jesse did anything that made her uncomfortable, she would get out of the truck. She would also keep them updated via phone calls on her location. Carrie had reason to be on edge. Not only had Jesse tried to convince her to participate in sex work, but he had made uncomfortable comments and passes at her in the past. Cody promised that she could call any time, and no matter how far away she was, if she needed to be picked up, he would go get her. Bruce McDonald, sleeping bag recoverer, called the police the day after the findings. He recalled seeing a small piece of paper crumpled up in the pit near the sleeping bag. He hadn't considered the area could have been a crime scene, so he didn't think anything of it at the time. He had also seen an abandoned car on the same road where he found those items. It was a blue IHC Scout sport utility truck, one of those adorable boxy trucks, kind of like an old Bronco. Detectives were quick to go check it out. By now, detectives were scattered around. You had one group calling contacts found in Carrie's purse, another reviewed the potential evidence that had been brought in, and another searched for the area where the bag had been found while looking for the scout Bruce had mentioned. Since Bruce hadn't thought his find was that serious, he only had a general sense of the area the items had been. He even returned to try to help. He, along with officers, walked for hours along the I-97. It took until noon for the car to be located. When the plates were run, it was found to have been stolen from California, so it was towed. It was when the location of the items was found that the secluded rest stop nearby was brought up as a potential dump site. Before finding the body, police were tracing Carrie's steps. Calling the phone numbers found on the papers in her purse, one was for Northern Star Trucking. Another was for her former roommate, Kelly. The officer who called Kelly had to be careful to not panic her when they spoke. Carrie's body had not been found yet, so he wasn't going to mention the bloody pillow and sleeping bag. He made it clear he needed to get in contact with Carrie as soon as possible. Kelly understood and confirmed Carrie had left Washington on the 16th with Jesse. From the first time she met Jesse, Kelly thought he was a snake, and it seemed every part of him was shady. She also knew of his second business, Double Jack. She surprised the officers by sharing that just a week before, Carrie had called her saying that she needed to talk about something and that she was in some sort of trouble. They met up, but Carrie wouldn't talk about whatever it was that had her scared. This was worrisome to Kelly, so she actually called Cody's mother, that's the younger boyfriend, his mom. She told Kelly that Cody, too, had mentioned that there was some sort of situation with Carrie and he wouldn't say more out of concern that if he did, Jesse would kill both of them. That's suspicious. Yeah. 
So it's speculated that this may have had something to do with Jesse's other business, trafficking drugs. Before the trip, Carrie had told Cody that while checking the work messages one day, there was one asking for the candy man. Carrie didn't know who that was, so she ignored it. When she mentioned it to Jesse, he said he was the candy man and the call was in regard to drugs. He told her that he was running cocaine from Mexico up through California, throughout Washington, and even as far as Vancouver, B.C. He's got some loose lips, doesn't he? He has no problem. Well, <laughs> he's he's faced consequences, but not really for the amount of illegal activity he does. Yeah. So I'm sure he just feels empowered constantly. Oh, yeah. When you get away with it for so mm-hmm. long. This admission left officers thinking Jesse's anger toward Mel's late return may have been about him possibly returning from Canada after such a run and the tardiness maybe had Jesse worried or concerned that he had been busted. Kelly called the trooper back to provide him with Carrie's father's phone number. Detectives then contacted William Eckhart, Carrie's biological father who lived in California. He hadn't known how to contact her at work, so he didn't call Northern Star when she hadn't arrived at 4 p.m., the time he was expecting her. It's unclear if Carrie informed her father about getting the late start on the road and if that would have changed her arrival time. He had been worried but said he would have Carrie call as soon as she got in so she could retrieve her belongings from police. Kelly had been the one to contact Cody, the sort of still boyfriend. He also hadn't heard from Carrie since their departure. Cody called the police around 10 p.m. He was worried about her. He confirmed Carrie's hesitancy in going that she said Jesse just wanted in her pants. The police asked Cody to describe the tractor trailer Carrie was supposed to be traveling in. He hadn't seen it himself, but Carrie had described it to him. It was green, had a sleeper, maybe a refrigeration system. He didn't think anything was in the trailer and wasn't sure of the route Jesse had planned on taking. Seeking answers for some of the items, Cody was asked what Carrie had been wearing. He described her clothes and her white pro-wing tennis shoes, just like those found in the bag. Officers asked about the pink pills. All Cody knew was that Carrie had started her period that Sunday, which he knew for sure as they had had sex. So maybe they were in regard to that. However, roommate Kelly said that she believed that they were being used for STI treatment. And I really love how cute that is for the boyfriend. Like, she's on her period. Maybe she's taking a pink pill. For being a girl? Might all, maybe? (laughs) Cody had a key to Carrie's place, so he opened it up for the police. There wasn't much to be found. He would later call the detectives to inform them of other items he remembered being in Carrie's bag. She had taken two of his football jerseys, the number 67 and his last name on the back. Cody also provided the police with a photo of Carrie and the three cards that had been sent from the mysterious spider. Spider doesn't really come back into the story just as evidence, but it seems pretty clear that it's Jesse. I mean, he was the only one that really knew where she lived. Exactly. Sort of ex, sort of still F buddy Jim was interviewed. He and Carrie had remained friends. They spoke on Sunday night after Cody left, and he too could tell that something was off with her, but she wouldn't divulge. He went to her place to talk. Going to leave, he didn't want to ride his motorcycle home in the now rainy conditions, so he stayed over and they had sex multiple times. The National Guard spoke to a detective. They had last heard from Carrie on the 16th, and she was still planning on attending her training that weekend. Going through NST, Northern Star Trucking, paperwork, detectives found the owner of the refrigerated trailer Jesse was in possession of. Jesse had not been making payments, and they wanted it returned. Jesse responded with violent threats. That interaction had taken place 10 weeks prior to the trip, and by the time police got in contact with the owner, he had already begun civil proceedings. It was starting to look like the trip to California was more of an opportunity to skip town than it was to build his business. Connie, Mel's wife, was interviewed at her home as she had been in the truck right before it was taken by Jesse. She confirmed the duct tape on the passenger side floor, She also saw at least two, still in the plastic, rolls of paper towels. She knew of the decorative pillow whose case had been used to hold some of Carrie's items. This was a pillow from her home, and she could prove it. She had the matching one. Northern Star Trucking was then called. Mona answered. She confirmed Carrie and Jesse's departure from NST on the 16th, 
saying he was going to eventually be in Arizona to deliver potatoes. She also said that Jesse had called several times since they left. He reported he had finished the job in L.A. and that he was leaving Fresno with the potatoes and was on his way to Arizona. Then another time to say that he had dropped the tots, but he would be stopping to get a load of onions. Not one time did he mention Carrie. The next time she spoke to the police, she dropped a bomb, saying the last time that she spoke to Jesse was on the 17th, which I get it. The timeline sounds basically impossible to do the run he was doing in a semi-truck, leaving the afternoon of the 16th and then Arizona like the 17th or something. I know I can get to L.A. in my little car in like 19 hours. So right away, if, if your red flags are being raised, you're not wrong. Anyway, Mona told Jesse that police had contacted her, so she asked if she could check in with Carrie really quick over the phone. Jesse would have happily facilitated that conversation, except Carrie wasn't with him. He said that after starting the drive, Carrie changed her mind and she wanted to fly straight to L.A. Jesse did as asked and dropped her at the SeaTac airport. He would call Mona later that day to check in on the mail and load schedules. He also asked if anyone had heard from Carrie. Mona told him that no one had. Detectives went to the NST office. They asked Mona to try to get in touch with Jesse, so she called him. As two officers listened to Mona's half of the conversation, they heard her tell Jesse that Carrie was missing and her purse and other items had been found. Jesse repeated his airport story. He did give more details this time. He said that he stopped at a strip club by the airport because his truck wouldn't navigate the small drop-off area. From there, Carrie was supposed to take a cab to the airport. Although, he added, she might have met up with her old friend Bill and just left with him. At the time of this call, Jesse claimed to be in Dugan, California, which is just outside Sacramento. Mona told him the police had been asking about Carrie. Jesse seemed unfazed, saying that he had decided against going to L.A., but he would try to find a load to drive home to make money. This caused the detectives to look at each other puzzled. How could he pick up a load if he claimed to have just been given one in Arizona or Fresno? It was not making sense. Back at the station, the items were being looked at again. It was thought that because of the blood and fecal matter that was found on the sleeping bag, there was a very strong possibility that they were connected to a homicide. Looking at the pillowcase, an item appeared that hadn't been on the initial intake list. It was a handful of crumpled paper towels wrapped in tape. One of the detectives picked it up and pulled on one of the corners of the tape. With that, the wad came undone and it quickly revealed itself to be more than just leftovers from cleaning up a mess. This was thick with multiple layers of tape and towels, tape and towels. As the tape popped off of the edges and it opened all the way, there were clear indentations in the middle and at the bottom. They looked to be the shape of a nose and a chin. Looking closer at what appeared to be the nostril area, there was encrusted blood and mucus. Detectives felt that this was a suffocation device. Opening up another towel, an earring was discovered. Back at the truck stop, which was 15 miles from where the sleeping bag had been found, before finishing the recovery of the body in the gravel, police needed to clear the area. Two trucks were at the rest stop. The drivers were interviewed and quickly cleared. When the body was first found at 3.47 p.m., police informed the DA, the state police crime lab, and the medical examiner. Photographs were taken as each layer of rock was painstakingly removed. They didn't want to brush everything away and pull the body out with haste as they didn't know what kind of evidence might be buried around her. So with as little disturbance as possible, they cleared the rocks. On and near the gravel were traces of blood. On the gravel shoulder, there appeared to be hair, tissue, blood, and brain matter. From that spot, there was a long drag mark going from there to the pile of gravel. Revealing the entire body, it was clear this person had been murdered. The young woman's body was nude. She had small puncture wounds on the front and back. Her spine looked to have been attacked with something akin to an ice pick. Bruising appeared on her wrists and neck, seemingly from restraints. On her left arm, there appeared to be a large, sort of burnt-in pattern bruise. It looked to everyone like this was some sort of tire impression. Connecting that bruise to the other injuries, such as the right side of her skull being crushed, it seemed these injuries were caused by a vehicle. Before moving her from the location, the CSI team carefully looked her over, 
collecting balls of fiber from her abdomen and additional evidence. Her body was released at 8.40 p.m. From the start, Detective Cooper took this investigation seriously. He saw his own child in the young woman, and he would be damned if anything his team did was going to let the perpetrator walk free. He knew that being Carrie's voice was now his responsibility. And, you know, in moments like this, I had a thought of, like, we almost need, like, a little bell. You know, like when Taco Bell does a good job and you ring the bell when you leave. <laughs> we can have a little bell in here and be like, they did it. The detectives did oh, a good like job. Yeah. Absolutely. That'd be really funny. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. They did it. Yay. They took it seriously and they didn't screw it up. At the Long John's and Taco Bell up the street, there's like a bell at the door. That's and if cool. you do it, it's oh, like, like with a rope. Yeah. Oh, it's like, like oh, did yeah, our okay. staff do a good job? Yeah. <laughs> that would annoy me. We wouldn't have to do it very much. Dr. Robert Jameson completed the nine-and-a-half-hour autopsy. He listed the cause of death as stab wounds to the heart and great vessels. There were multiple stab wounds, at least 12. They were long and slender, and they all looked like maybe they had come from an ice pick. They were found across her stomach, chest, and neck. The superior pulmonary vein and superior vena cava, both in the heart, showed wounds that had bled extensively into the pericardial cavity. She was stabbed in the left lung, which caused fluid to build up. There were also signs of suffocation, such as petechial hemorrhaging, which would have added to the cause of death. Wounds included a crushed skull, broken cartilage, and broken ribs on the left side. Several vertebrae in her neck were broken, and she had the tire mark on her arm. Thankfully, it was found that these injuries more than likely occurred after she was dead. Traces of and marks left by duct tape were found on her lower back, hands, neck, and face. She had dozens of other injuries that were minor, but may have been part of the attack or her fighting back. A vaginal swab was conducted, which recovered spermatozoa and showed signs of rape. Under her fingernails, foreign fibers were seen and saved to be tested. As the autopsy was conducted, officers were still processing the rest stop now using a metal detector to find any additional evidence, especially the murder weapon. Nothing was recovered. Even though Carrie's ID was found and it appeared the body was a match, police needed a positive identification. Connie Love, Carrie's mother, made what must have been the longest eight-and-a-half-hour drive of her life to do just that. The officers advised her against viewing her daughter in such condition, especially with her crushed skull, but Connie insisted. She was a nurse, and she needed to know for sure. All Connie needed to see was Carrie's pinky finger. It was her stubby, as it was lacking one joint. With that, it was confirmed that this was the body of 20-year-old Carrie Love. Two hours after the initial conversation with the detectives present, Jesse called NST again. This time, Mona told Jesse flat out that detectives were sitting right there with her. He told her to cooperate with them. Mona then started to call Jesse sugar, baby, and sweets. The detectives were shocked when Mona looked at them and handed over the receiver. Jesse wanted to talk. A detective took the call. He informed Jesse that Carrie was dead, but he couldn't give much more information. Jesse wanted details of her location, but was not given them. Without being prompted, Jesse laid out an alibi. He claimed to have gone south on the I-5 toward Eugene before stopping for the night. After resting in the sleeper, he went south on the I-5 Tuesday morning at 8 a.m. Once he was in Eugene, he went over to Highway 58, which then connected to Highway 97. He stayed on that preferred road until the Klamath Falls truck stop around noon. They could even ask the old man who worked there. He knows Jesse as the man from Alaska. As he passed through Weed, California, he lost his fuel cap at the scales on the evening of the 17th. Jesse offered to stop at Klamath Falls on his return home. He would be happy to speak with the officers. They asked him to return to Seattle, where they would meet up with him. He then asked, out of concern for his own safety, if he should be vigilant, keeping an eye over his own shoulder. They were like, mm, no. The phone was given back to Mona, but was quickly returned. Jesse asked if Carrie's body was going to be sent to Seattle. The police told him that that was a decision for her family to make. The phone was handed back to Mona, and after a few moments, the call ended. An APB was put out for Jesse and his unmistakable truck. 
Officers from Seattle through Oregon, California, and even Arizona were all on the lookout. Oh, I love this story so much. At 8.30 p.m. on the 19th, a patrolman was getting gas when he overheard Northern Star trucking on his CB radio. He knew that that was related to Jesse. Thinking fast, he got on the horn and pretended to be a trucker who had seen the green machine as he blew his doors open on the highway, meaning he was hauling ass. Unable to ignore a compliment or attention, Jesse responded, taking the credit. Wanting to meet the guy with the cool, fast truck, the cop asked for Jesse's location, which he freely gave. Three patrol cars went to the location and pulled him over. Wow. It was Jesse. He couldn't provide a truck driver's license, and he didn't have any of the correct paperwork for the driving he was doing. He simply hadn't had the time to get it. He was given tickets for the lack of documentation. Police then told him that he was wanted for questioning in regard to a homicide in Oregon, of which he claimed to be aware. And I think that sums him up so perfectly. He knows that he's wanted for questioning. He can't stop. But he can't. If someone's like, oh, cool truck, yeah, man. Yeah, he has to talk to them. Mm-hmm. And I love that that's what got him. Jesse was taken into custody. The truck was impounded for processing. Detectives from Oregon flew down to arrest him under charges of aggravated murder. Jesse once again gave his I dropped her off at the airport story. Only now, the timing was different. Being officially questioned, Jesse again changed his story. This time, they left the office, but before getting on the road, he realized he had forgotten to bring his suitcase, so they went by his place. When they did, Carrie claimed to be in need of some love and attention from Jesse. Leaving his place, they went to the Evergreen truck stop to have sex in the sleeper. Afterward, they went to a bar by the airport so she could catch her flight. This time, it was around 6 or maybe 5? Maybe 5.30. He was unable to provide an airline flight number or departure time for the flight Carrie was supposedly taking. Officers pointed out how strange it was that he claimed to have purchased the flight himself yet couldn't even remember the airline. In response to that, he shrugged. Police were unable to locate Carrie on any flight manifest. Of all people, Mona, the now 10-day employee of NST, was concerned about her boss. She reached out to a lawyer in Seattle who connected with one in Arizona. As his representation, they gave police permission to search the truck and Pratt's person. Police took fingernail scrapings and samples of his blood, saliva, and hair, including beard, arms, and pubic. They photographed him in a red t-shirt and jeans. When they said that they would need to take the shirt as evidence, Jesse didn't hesitate to remove it. When he did, they noticed long scratches and bruising along his ribs. The extradition waiver was signed. After a quick stop at McDonald's for what would possibly be his last meal as a free man, Jesse was returned to Oregon. At 1 a.m. on June 25th, he was booked into the Kalamath County Jail. In possession of the Kenworth truck, the team took five days to go over every inch of it. They photographed everything, documented the details of each of the tires with photographs and notes. The sleeper had no sheets, but it did have a blanket on it, which was brand new and still wrapped. Out of concern that trying to retrieve fingerprints from the cab might end up damaging them, the cab was bagged, fully enclosed. Then they filled it with gas from superglue. The fuming process would allow the glue to adhere to latent fingerprints. What was most notable to the team processing the truck was how meticulously clean it was. Not clean like I take care of my rig, but clean as in detailed. It was so clean, no fingerprints of Carrie's, Mel's, or even Jesse's had been found in his own truck. That's a little suspicious. A like, little. Why'd you clean your truck uh -huh. like that? All they found were four unusable prints, which were recovered from the little window separating the sleeping area, and there was some blood evidence on the driver's side door. Basically, the truck had been scrubbed. It was time to build a case against Jesse. Mona was flown from Seattle to Klamath Falls to meet with detectives. In the same breath that she claimed to know nothing about Double Jack, she also said that Double Jack wasn't a front for illegal activities. She claimed a skeezy man named Dan ran it, and as far as she knew, Jesse had no part of it. As for Carrie, Mona felt that she was protective and maybe even jealous of Jesse as she was fond of his attention. This struck me as being quite the statement to make after working with both of them for only a few days before one of them wound up dead. 
Mona even told Jesse that she thought Carrie might have been in love with him. What? Carrie would bring her personal problems to work, Mona said, and Jesse would comfort her or loan her money. So all of these claims had me wondering, did Mona actually witness those interactions or those things being said? Or in just those few days, was Jesse talking to her? You know, was he going up yeah. being like, oh, Carrie's at it again. Like I had to feeding, give her some money. or Feeding her these stories. Exactly. To kind of like paint the picture that he wanted to paint of who he was. Carrie and Mona had spent some time together, like going to lunch that Monday. It turned out that Cody wasn't too pleased to learn that Jim had spent the night at Carrie's on Sunday. When Mona told Jesse that Carrie's purse had been found on the side of the road, he seemed unbothered. To him, this was no surprise because of how flighty Carrie was. Leaning into his alibi, he told Mona that when he left Carrie at the bar, she was actually talking to two people. So maybe she didn't fly anywhere and she just left with them. He also told Mona about their tryst in the sleeper cab before leaving, which she believed. So yeah, all of that has me thinking he was just manipulating her to have someone, someone on his side. When asked if she felt Jesse had killed Carrie, Mona said no. Not only is he too smart to have done that, but he had spent time in prison and he wouldn't have wanted to go back. <sighs> He's the most unlikely person I could think of. I mean, he has been to prison. He does have issues with women. He is extremely violent, but no way. Mel was asked the same question when he was interviewed. He also didn't think Jesse had killed her, but not because he wasn't capable, but because he wasn't dumb enough to just let her body be so easy to find. When he dropped off the truck, it had 300 miles worth of gas remaining. He also positively identified the sleeping bag found on the highway as the one he had seen in the cab. All of this had Mel on edge, not because he was involved, but because he was so scared to face the wrath of Jesse should he find out he was talking with police. Connie, Mel's wife, not Carrie's mother, was also questioned. She had worried about Carrie being on the road with Jesse. She was great at her job and good for the business, but she was out of Jesse's league, making her untouchable to him. She also wasn't easily intimidated by Jesse, as so many people were. Informed of Jesse's side businesses, Connie said, Knowing Jesse, it wouldn't surprise me if it was a front for whores. Speaking to her personal experience with Jesse, Connie said she would regularly go on rides with other truckers. They were all friends and she could get out and about. Of course, there would be flirtatious jokes or teasing about her riding around with the guys, but it was all in good fun. Except when it came to Jesse, who demanded her to have sex with him. She told her husband Mel, who used his levity to keep Jesse in line without getting a reaction from him. On another occasion, some shit was going down while they were out, and Mel stuck up for Jesse, which earned him respect. Appreciated or not, Connie never wanted to be alone with Jesse. The McClintocks had their own legal history. Mel, or Melvin, was arrested in 1980 for theft, and in 1983, he was charged with littering. You don't often see that. There had also been accusations that Mel had been sexually abusive to one or more of his stepchildren. Learning of the accusations, Jesse let Mel know that he was happy to help in getting his stepdaughter murdered if need be. Mel passed on the offer. It doesn't appear anything happened after those initial claims of abuse towards Mel, but sometime in the early 90s, he did plead guilty to two counts of statutory rape. I could only find the appeal from 1994 where he claimed that he had had ineffective counsel when he took that plea deal. The courts denied that claim. However, I am unable to find any sentencing information. The day before Jesse's 42nd birthday, July 2nd, 1986, he was charged with aggravated murder. The aggravated charge was due to him committing the murder while in the act of committing rape, in addition to her being tortured. Detective Cooper was still on the case. Because there were no eyewitnesses to the murder, he was searching for anyone along the drive who might have seen Carrie or Jesse. He also spoke with past partners and learned of Jesse's cruel abuse. Cooper even flew to Alaska to speak to some of those women and other people who had known Jesse. Detective Cooper turned to Jesse's road notes to build a timeline. Jesse still struggled to read, but he was thorough about keeping his driving log up to date. Cooper used the details Jesse wrote down to compare them to receipts and a map. 
Driving himself from Seattle to Phoenix, Detective Cooper wanted to make sure that the miles were accurate. He wanted to track the time, and he kept an eye on the shoulders for any other items that may have come from the green rig. All of this work was helpful, but it didn't provide any kind of aha moment. Revisiting the items in the evidence locker, Cooper again went through the briefcase that had been found in the truck. He had somehow missed two receipts. One was for a restaurant, which clearly had the orders of two people. The other was for a gas station in Woodland, Washington, which is about 28 miles north of the Oregon border. The receipts were dated June 16th. All you got to do is go through a briefcase uh, and then there's a couple of things at least you even missed. even the what's referred to later as the mask the tape wad like mm-hmm. even that was found later because it was just stuck to something so yeah they don't get a bell ringing on this stuff but they do they do try to make up for it but yeah just go through every piece of paper every every single one of them so it's re- what they pay you for on that day at red's tires jesse purchased 95 dollars worth of diesel this was a big find Jesse had not only said he preferred to wait until he got into Oregon to get cheaper gas, but based on what fuel was left in the truck that Mel told them about, Jesse should have been able to get to central Oregon. On August 13th, Cooper phoned Red's Tires and spoke with the manager, Greg Taylor. Cooper inquired about a truck coming through two months prior with Northern Star written on it. Greg hollered out to his employee, Jeff, something along the lines of, Hey, Jeff, did you see a truck come through last month with Northern Star on the door? Jeff replied, Oh, you mean the green KW with the name on the door? Cooper hadn't told them the color of the truck. Jeff and Cooper then spoke. Because the truck was so flashy, it had caught the kid's attention. He remembered every part of it, the green color, the name, the chrome. Asked about who was driving, Jeff thought for a moment. It was an older guy with scrawny arms and a big pot belly, which was mentioned several times. He had bushy, curly hair and a full beard. He was wearing jeans, a plaid shirt, and cowboy boots. He also remembered the passenger. She was a much younger, smaller girl. She had sort of a short brown haircut and light coat and jeans. She wasn't wearing shoes, just ankle socks, and he could see from afar that she needed braces. Their difference in age, appearance, and overall vibe was eye-catching. Here you had a beautiful young woman accompanied by a big, sloppy guy whose belly was so big he couldn't button his shirt. Thankfully, it all stuck in Jeff's mind. A few days later, Cooper was at Red's with photos in hand. He had two photo lineups to show Jeff. On one page, men of similar look and build, including a photo of Jesse. Jeff stared at the pictures for 4 minutes and 37 seconds. He knew this was a murder case, so he wasn't flippant with his task. Finally, he pointed to Jesse with certainty. The next page included photos of women, including Carrie. Jeff took 12 seconds to choose her. Detective Cooper put together what he felt was a legitimate timeline of Jesse's trip south. They left the office around 4, got out of Seattle about 5. They get gas an hour and a half later. This was where Jeff saw them. Later, they got dinner, which was also connected to the receipt. On the 17th, Jesse drove 335 miles. At 9 a.m., they were on the road. Jesse called Mona from Klamath Falls at 11.30 to say that he had dropped Carrie off at the Seattle airport the day before. He called Mona again at 2.30. Somewhere in this time frame, he stopped at a Texaco near Mount Shasta in Northern California. By 4 p.m., he's in Weed, California and takes a two-hour break. At 6 p.m., he was back on the road. There were more receipts through the day, and at 9 p.m. he was done. On the 18th, he drove 279 miles, leaving at 8.30 a.m. Jesse called Mona again, asking if anyone had heard from Carrie. He called again at 10.30 and twice at 2.30. The second call was to inform her that he would be headed to Phoenix. At 7.55 p.m., he received a citation in Livermore, California. At 11 p.m., he ended his day in Fresno. At the truck stop he came to, he purchased two padlocks and two air fresheners. On the 19th, he left Fresno around 8 a.m. At 1.30, he called Mona. In San Bernardino, he took an hour break before heading south. At 8 p.m., he was in Arizona, where he was arrested. Next week will be the trials Jesse faced in what is hopefully the final chapter of his story.
My eyes got to focus. Eyes got to focus. Okay. Eyes got to focus. Eyes got to focus. Eyes got to focus. Eyes got to focus. Pep's a dumb word. Say it. I love it. Pepperoni. Pepperoni. Careful. I might get hungry. Oh, no. And then she'll have the farts. To the stampede past. Past. Then told her that a band. Oh, wait. I read that. I put that. You're a liar. (laughs) Is this the backstory for a haunted house? A hexagonal earring was discovered. Hexagonal. 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 Opening up another towel, a hexan. Hex- what is it? Opening up another towel, a hexan. Nope. Fuck it. On the graver, graver shirter, was returned to or- T Oregon. How's this for a T-shirt idea? Okay. Just, just words on a T-shirt. Uh-huh. Beard, arms, pubic. <laughs> Trying not to poop my pants. Oh no! Do you need to go poop inside? Oh wait. Okay. In the truck. That. What even was that sound? Zup. I shorted out. Willing to help. Oh. Oh, I must have accidentally deleted a thing. Um, charged with littering. Oh. Tiring. <laughs> I'm repositioning. Sure you are. Yeah, your farts to the outside of your body. <laughs> Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written, hosted, and edited by Josh McCullough, Emily Rowney, and Alicia Holland. Feel free to email us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. For as little as a dollar a month, you can subscribe on Patreon to get exclusive access to ad-free and older episodes. For only $5, you can access Patreon-exclusive episodes and content. For more of us, be sure to follow on all the socials, listen to Josh and Alicia on their other show, Always Be My Sisters, and follow Emily on TikTok at M underscore Murder in the Rain. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>